Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of the Big Gay Book Club. I'm Chris. And I'm Amy. And this week, we're actually going to be talking about The Spare Man, which is a book written by Mary Robinette Kowal or Cowell? I've said How would you say that? I think sometimes I say Kowal and sometimes I say Cowal, um, but I don't know. (laughs) It's my honestly first introduction to this author, and I was really excited to kind of jive with her writing style. It was fun. She's, She's got a great writing style, and it's definitely the style for me where I feel like once I open the book, I can just settle in. No matter where I am, I feel like I'm in a, a really cozy armchair mm-hmm. and just feel immersed right away. So what have we been up to since our last episode recording, Amy? Well, our first introductory episode has been released. Episode zero, our Meet the Hosts, we released that, which was very exciting. Yes, and depending on where you're listening to this episode, our episodes should now be on all of the major podcast services we're on spotify we're on apple podcasts um i think we're also gonna be on google podcasts so you can listen to us in all the good places it's so exciting yeah and that means that you can also let us know what you think by leaving a review in those places Mm -hmm. so we can get out to more people yeah, we've uh, also uh, go for it. we played together the very special game that was released um, by the just recently by the time we're recording this podcast, but it's going to be out for a while um, when this episode gets released. But we played Baldur's Gate three together yes. on my stream. Oh my gosh. That was to oh. celebrate the release of our um, first episode, our getting to know the hosts episode. We actually got to play the day our episode released and. I think I've played a lot more than Amy has since then, but it's Mm -hmm. just like the perfectly queer game. And it's not like overtly queer, but it's just, it allows you so much freedom and creativity in both how you proceed through its story and how you create your character. Like you can create trans Mm -hmm. characters and non-binary characters. You can interact with characters in any, like, really perceivable sexuality you choose for yourself, which is pretty cool. Nice. And there are also, I've already stumbled across a few queer characters in the world. So it's just like a plus game. And for all you gamers out there, I know the talk of the town of 2023 is, are there any games that can beat tears of the kingdom for game of the year? And I've been hearing and also kind of thinking Baldur's Gate three might be that game. I've been thinking that too. This has been a really banner year for games. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And I like, I kind of like us still talking about that side of ourselves on this podcast. Like it won't be the focus of the podcast, obviously, Mm -hmm. because we're reviewing books, but like it's such a big part of our lives and there's so much queer potential in that medium as well. It's hard Mm -hmm. not to just brush upon it because it's like one of the big ways we interact with each other. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'm I'm really excited to play more Baldur's Gate 3 with you at some point. Sometimes oh, soon. yes. I am looking forward to whenever that may be. <laughs> Another cool thing that's happened 
is we've actually gotten our first book recommendation from one of our listeners, which is pretty crazy to me because our first episode had only been out for less than a week when that happened. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, that's pretty cool. And I'm sure we're actually going to be adding that to our book list within the, within the year, more than likely. Yeah. We're already kind of planned out about six months into the future, but I foresee us adding that at yeah. some point, which is exciting. It is exciting. And if any of you have book recommendations for us as well, you're very welcome to send them in. You can email us at thebiggaybookclub at gmail.com, or you can message us on Instagram at tbgbookclub, um, or you could just stop by my stream, twitch.tv slash jaspelior, and you can let us know. Yeah. And honestly, that's kind of awesome because I will tell you, I have since we've started this podcast, been to bookstores a lot. Mm-hmm. Like I went to a Barnes and Nobles down near Boston last weekend. A Barnes and Nobles opened about an hour from me near oh, a nice. friend of mine. So yeah, that's pretty darn awesome. And I've also just, I've gotten at least one book every time I've went just perusing and just like the list of books we're going to be reading is adding up and it's looking amazing. I know. I'm so excited. There's going to be so many great reads, very mm-hmm. queer reads ahead of us. And I cannot wait. And I've texted you so many pictures of books that maybe you I have. didn't, that I didn't <laughs> buy, but I'm just like, I'm texting you this for prosperity. So if we need a book in the distant future, we'll can scroll back through our pictures and be like, oh yeah, there was this. Absolutely. I've already been saving those pictures for that purpose. Nice. <laughs> Uh, and because I think this is just kind of coincidental, but also a little bit celestial and fate, Mm -hmm. we've actually, in our three books we've read so far, including the one we're going to talk about today, Mm -hmm. our fluffy animal companion count is three for three. So we've been batting a hundred. Or is it batting, batting a thousand? Well, I think I think we're batting. Yeah, maybe it's a batting a thousand, but we're uh, it's a hundred percent so far success rate in terms of fluffy companions. We had Calliope, we had Nelly, and now we've got Gimlet. Oh my gosh! And I'm just realizing as I'm reading our book for November, it's going to be four. It's for four. four for four. <laughs> Perfect. That's be great. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. The streak continues. Not we, a we know what we like but... and we stick to it. It helps we when do. there's a picture of a fluffy dog on the cover because I'm oh sure gosh. that drew you to this book. It did for sure. I think it was like I well we'll we'll get into it in a bit, but there were definitely some appealing things about this cover that just really drew me in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and just one other thing I wanted to mention. You are kind of going to get a weird timey-wimey stuff as you listen to these episodes because the nature and timeline in which we're recording them well ahead of time. Um, Mm -hmm. But regardless of that, if you have questions about the books we're reading that you want us to address on our podcast or just comments you'd like us to maybe discuss, you can still email us and we'll probably just stitch in a special question and answer um, section at the end of our podcast in the future if we do get those questions. So don't feel like because we're recording them so early and you're sending us questions after we record them that they won't get addressed because it's really easy to just record a special section where we discuss those and add them in because we definitely really want to. 
We do. And that's the magic of editing. We can make timey-wimey things feel um, a little bit more chronological. Exactly. And I, I mean, we've already discussed this, I think, in one of our first episodes, but the reason we're recording this is because of being adults and having our own schedules. It's kind of nice to um, have a surplus of episodes. So when we get into our busier parts of our lives, we can mm-hmm. kind of read a little bit more slowly than we like to if we have to and still release episodes monthly and have good content. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, maybe you have the same experience, Chris, but I feel like I go through like waves or phases when it comes to reading throughout the year. Sometimes I'm in the mood to read books and only books and I devour them. Like that's when I get my like, oh, I finished three books in two days, periods. And then I have other times where like I'll really stretch a book out. Sometimes I just want to savor it. Sometimes my head's just in other spaces. And sometimes, you know, I start a book and then I lose interest a little bit. And it just takes me longer to finish it, like, you know, a few weeks to a few months for a single book. And so I'm really happy that we're building in the grace for ourselves because I think allowing us to read books at our own pace is a form of self-care. And yeah. Uh, I think that still enabling us to read, even when we're in like a lower productivity part of our reading phase, means we're still able to uh, reduce stress while fulfilling our our timetable that we've set for ourselves. And sometimes it can depend on the book too, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Like the beginning of this book I'm reading for our next episode was a little bit slower and I was taking a little yes. bit longer to get into it, but I kind of just hit that, what do they call it, in the, the, the narrative hook in yeah. the story. And now I'm like fully on board this speeding train and I'd planned I'm on only reading you. maybe like 10 pages yesterday before I was started cooking dinner, but mm-hmm. I ended up reading like 50 pages oh, and yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm in it now. Like my seatbelt is buckled, the gear is up to five and I'm just like cruising through it now. I'm so glad. I, I had a very similar experience with the Spare Man. Um, but like I said before, I I definitely was immersed in this from the first page. But I took more time with it in the beginning because I was really enjoying the world building. I was mm-hmm. enjoying getting to know these characters. And then when I hit the narrative hook, it was all over. I was like, I'm, I'm speeding through this now. But that's how mysteries go. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that's a great transition into starting to discuss the Spare Man. Let's do it. Because a lot of this book is just amazing world building. Mm-hmm. So That's do we want to talk a, a little bit more about kind of the history of this author in this book before we get yes, started? Yes, let's do it. Yeah. So uh, The Spare Man, like we said before, by Mary Robinette Cowell. Uh, She's also released the Lady Astronaut series and the Glamorist series. Uh, This book came out in October of 2022. So it's a fairly recent release, um, you know, within the last year as we're recording this podcast. And um, I'm actually familiar with Mary Robinette Cole's work before because I read uh, the first of the Lady Astronaut series, The Calculating Stars. Um, Chris, do you want to read the back of the book? Yeah, I'd love to. Because we wanted to kind of get the synopsis earlier on in our discussions. So people who are listening who've maybe not read the book yet and are kind of deciding, kind of know what they're in for and know what it's about. Yeah. So Tesla Crane, a brilliant inventor and heiress, is on her honeymoon via an interplanetary space liner. 
already hooked. Cruising mm-hmm. between the moon and Mars, she's traveling incognito and reveling in her anonymity. The, the Then someone is murdered and the festering chowderheads who run security have the audacity to arrest her spouse. Armed with banter, martinis, and her small service dog, Tesla is determined to solve the crime so that the newlyweds can get back to canoodling and keep the real killer from striking again. Ooh, love Okay, it. that's great. I actually hadn't read that yet because of what you said in our first episode, The House of uh-huh. Miss Ruley and C. I've been a little less keen on reading them and i kind of like the surprise as we read them for the podcast and that was written in such a way i almost feel like the author maybe wrote that because it kind of had the same sass i'm used to in her writing already yeah i don't know maybe it does similar tonally yeah like it's just i get this the festering chowderheads who run security have the audacity Uh to arrest her spouse that's very good (laughs) and reading that sentence you kind of get a good feeling for what you're in for with this book Absolutely. It's great. Uh, so, Amy, because you yeah. were the one who suggested this book to me, what drew you to reading it in the first place? Okay. Uh, great question. So, I believe I keep a lot of lists on my phone for books. I think I have like books I want to check out, books that I need to request from the library, books to look up. And, um, I think I had this, the Spare Man cover as an image in one of those lists. And I didn't know what it was about. I just had the cover. I think probably a friend of mine on Facebook had like read it and was like, oh, this is my weekend read. And I was like, oh, that looks fun. There's a dog on the cover. And then um, when I was like actually getting ready to look up some books to request to put on hold, because um, I, I read this before we started our podcast. Uh I had remembered I'd read The Calculating Stars. Uh, Like I said, it's the first book in the Lady Astronaut series by this author um, a couple years ago. And I had absolutely adored it. The Calculating Stars, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is uh, a sort of retake of history. It's like an alternative timeline where the USA doesn't win the space race. And what happens when the U.S. has to play catch up and they start inviting women to join the programs? And so uh, just like in The Spare Man, the protagonist of The Calculating Stars is uh, very intelligent, is sassy and smart, and is willing to stand up for what she believes in. Um, She's also got a beautiful relationship with her husband in that book in a very similar way that Tesla Crane has with her husband in this book. And so I just, I really enjoyed a lot of the vibes from that. I love the hard sci-fi. I really loved the very optimistic and readily like unfussy and undramatic relationship. Like they're just very supportive, that main relationship dynamic. A lot of times... Uh, authors will mine relationship drama in order to create conflict for the stories. And so like, what a breath of fresh air that there can be a very solid, strong foundational relationship that doesn't do that. And then the story ends up being about the main character and not about her love life. Anyways, so I really loved that. And I was like, if the spare man is anything like the calculating stars, um, then I think I'm going to enjoy this too. And if anything, this is an even more fun romp. It is. It's it's quick and it's fun. And I kind of want to address what you just said about the two main characters relationship, Mm -hmm. like the biggest drama I feel like they face between them is if one of them's being too like, uh, what's the best way to say this? Like 
too attuned to their significant other's needs. Like maybe mm. one of them's feeling a little bit like he's being a little bit too worried about me in this moment. And like, if that's not just wholesome and cozy. I know. And I, I really, yeah, I really liked that. Like it was a really, it felt a re- like a realistic relationship, yes. but also a healthy relationship, which I think yeah. is great to show. I think so too. I think we need more, more role model relationships in mm-hmm. our books and, and what better way to do that in a book that is so very queer and so very queer friendly. Mm-hmm. So what is one of your fa- most favorite things about this book that you didn't already mention in that? Oh, um, that I didn't already mention. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about the queer aspects because yes. I think that's really also foundational in this book. Uh, yep. Right from the get-go, you are introduced to uh, language that is not coded to infer gender. So instead of talking about a husband or a wife, they, they use those terms, but mostly the term that's that's welcome and friendly is spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, the term joyfriend is thrown out super early on, and I had the opportunity to share that with my queer in-laws and be like, hey, look at this. Um, isn't this a fun term? And they're like, oh, yeah, we like joyfriend. We like they friend, too. And I was like, I love it. I love mm-hmm. these alternative terms that you can use. Um, they're not prescriptive and they're not limiting. So I really love that. I love how um, when everyone is is talking about somebody else, you know, they don't describe them with gender first unless they're being very rude. And uh, they use honorifics like mix, MX, to indicate any person of respect. Yes. And that like there are a few of those things you just discussed that I'd known about but never really seen in practice because I'd never mm-hmm. known anybody who um, went by those pronouns. Mm-hmm. And I just maybe I'd had, I hadn't heard the word term joy friend or I like they friend too. You just telling me that it's something new I've learned. So it's just like these books being able to teach even us queer folks some new ways to interact with our community, which is, I think is pretty cool. Yeah. And it just gives like a really eye-opening glimpse at what a future could look like that's gender neutral. Yeah. And, and I think... Yeah, the pessimistic person might say, "Oh, this this future is impossible." But like the optimist in me sees the possibilities of a world in which everybody does respect people's genders and doesn't make assumptions based on somebody's appearance and is just defaults to the more gender neutral terminology until told otherwise by the people they are interacting with, which. I liked seeing that happen in this book a lot. It was kind of cool to see a world that I'm not really used to and it kind of helps me strive to be more like the characters who are positive mm-hmm. and taking it seriously in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of that optimism, there are spaces that I'm involved in, like Twitch, where I know that the default is gender neutral, they... Um, just because assumptions don't want to get made. And so I, I love seeing that these spaces are made and cultivated here and now. And I think that as 
you know, time goes on and cultural norms shift more towards the gender neutral, I think this is a, a more distinct possibility for our future. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I also really, really liked about this book mm-hmm. is just how humorous it was mm. in all the right places. And very much like the house in the cerulean sea i found myself like actually legit laughing at certain parts like there is this one character who's kind of very secondary to the plot she's not even in the main setting she's just pulled into the main setting via essentially facetime but futuristic facetime and i just every time our main character interacted with her and she was prevalent i just was an awe of kind of the icon that was before me. And I just, it was characters like that in the writing of that character and the way she spoke and the way she talked and the way mm-hmm. this author was able to blend humor with seriousness and with like pure feminine power was pretty great. I think I know the character you're talking about, but because this is our non-spoiler section, exactly. That's I, I do too. <laughs> but I didn't want. I just I wanted to kind of vaguely talk about a cool character that I'm just like, if you like strong characters who are funny and like quick-witted and tell you exactly what's on their mind and like the most like, I think like I got very like Gilmore Girls esque dialogue from this character like if anybody's ever watched gilmore girls you know like rory and lorelei how they just talk to each other rapid fire and they don't even think before they speak but they're saying such like iconic and cool things like that's this character in a nutshell and how she talks yeah i i'm with you if if it is the person i suspect then a hundred percent i didn't even put that together with gilmore girls but i think you're spot on there yeah, I, I, a lot of when I think about like good dialogue and writing in television, my baseline is Gilmore Girls. I love it. <laughs> yeah, because it's like one of my favorite shows from when I was growing up. I love it. Is there anything else uh, non-spoilery that has been a favorite part for you in this yeah i think so this is slight like it's not going to spoil too much of the plot it's just a characteristic of the main character but i think it's really Mm -hmm. worth mentioning because like it's it's not mentioned in the synopsis so somebody picking up this book might not read it but somebody who relates to this might pick up the book knowing this is true and that is that the main character deals a lot with chronic pain in the book Mm. and it's written very prominently and it's not skirted around and it's very astutely addressed in my opinion as somebody Mm -hmm. who has dealt with chronic pain in the past and present um so it was something i could really relate to and the author writes the main character in a very sleek and powerful way despite this chronic pain which was really cool to see Like, this person, it was existent, like, her existence was coupled with this thing. And while it did impact her, we also got to see her kind of live with it and push through it and be this really, um, really awesome person despite it. Yeah. I think even because of it. Because of it, yeah. I think, I think she's written to 
show that her weaknesses can sometimes be her strengths Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes her strengths can be her weaknesses. And I think that is one of the uh, exemplary character developments that you can see on offer by this author. For sure. And I just, it was really refreshing reading a character. I don't think I've read a character like that in a book ever. Yeah. Because gen like generally main characters have flaws, but not flaws so pronounced and so significant, which was which was great. Yeah, this character really delves into extremes, uh, extreme highs, extreme lows, uh, and I think that it just makes for a really exciting protagonist. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, I won't get too into it for fear of spoiling, but. In relation to the main character's chronic pain, there are some science science fiction aspects to it. But this whole book is... I don't read much Mm sci-fi, but as a scientist, I was just thoroughly engrossed by all the futuristic tech and the discussions of it. But my favorite part of all of this science fiction-y stuff was the setting of this cruise lining spaceship. And it's just like so well crafted and so neat. And I could picture in my head, if you've seen the movie The Martian with Matt Damon and how they use um, the centrifugal force to create gravity on this like essentially donut shaped spaceship. Mm -hmm. It's just like such a cool idea. And I don't know, it was a really neat thing. The setting was really well described. There's even a tiny little map in the front of the book that helps you picture it in your brain as they're traversing this ship. Yeah. So I, the science fiction aspects were well-placed, I felt, and I really liked them. Yeah. In The Calculating Stars, uh, she also has very grounded and realistic science, but it also, it makes you feel like first that you can understand it. It's accessible. Um, she's thorough. Like you don't feel like there's too many holes. Like that's what makes it feel like a really well anchored world that she's built. And I, I just think it's also aspirational because she's able to conceptualize and then back up with at least enough cursory research that it feels real and it feels possible. And I, I also love the setting. I love just the carnival cruise atmosphere and what a way to travel in style. It, but, it was um, very yeah. um, like strangers are a train or murder, murder on the Orient express, like this very oh, confined yes. mystery that is really, um, condensed because of the setting is so confined. Like they're on a spaceship. There's literally nowhere else for these characters to go. So there's right. the terror of the thought of a murderer running loose, but there's also um, the kind of like, how can we not know? Like there's a documented log of everybody on this ship. There are like, we know everybody here. We know who's died. Like it has to, it, it can't be that big of a mystery, but it is. And it's really well done. It's very, very well done. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to talk about that could convince somebody to read this book before we do dive into that spoiler talk? Uh, maybe not necessarily to convince somebody to read it, but something I found really fun. Uh, a couple things, actually, that I found really fun, and they're a little bit more meta, but the each chapter started off with a drink recipe. And like... 
it's just a really wonderful commitment to theming because, you know, the dog is named Gimlet in this book and uh, the the main character and her spouse love drinking. Like it's it's one of the ways that they bond. It's very like, I guess, like cultivated part of their relationship. And so at the, at the top of every single uh, chapter, there is a drink recipe, and some of them include zero-proof cocktails for those of you who, like me, don't drink. Um, at the end of the book, you actually have uh, in the acknowledgments section a little part about how the author dislikes the terms virgin and mocktail and uh, just prefers zero-proof because it sounds less like it's pandering or or childish or, you know whatever the hangups are about those terms. And I, I can see that for virgin. I've always kind of felt weird about the term virgin for drinks that don't have any alcohol in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind mocktail, but zero proof. That was a new one for me. And I think it's just beautiful. Chef's kiss. And I like that you mentioned the fact that you don't drink. I don't drink also, but I did enjoy that. And I sometimes noticed that the cocktails sort of related to the drinks in the chapter maybe yes and i also was drawn to those zero proof cocktails like there was actually one that had like cucumbers and whatnot in it that i was like oh i might actually try that that sounds really good it would be very fun to get together and try one of these zero proof cocktails 100 that's a great (laughs) idea and like it kind of helps you i don't know it's a weird it's a kind of an interesting way to relate to the main characters more too Mm -hmm. like because this is uh a big part of their kind of like leisure. So you kind of see what goes into their hobby or their. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just very immersive. And I think it's just wonderfully crafted inside this book. Um, and part of the mystery yeah. is even related to an alcoholic <gasps> beverage. So it's dun, all dun, kind dun. of themed in there. It's very themed. Uh, do you want to, before we get into spoiler talk, is there anything about this book that maybe you didn't like as much? So I, I think it could be a product of me just getting to the end and being so engrossed and like wanting to know what happened that I was reading a little bit more quickly than normal. Mm -hmm. But even in that excitement, there were still parts towards the end that either felt like they didn't get paid off, like parts of the mystery that didn't get super paid off or felt unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And there were some red herrings that I still had in the back of my mind that didn't get addressed very well and felt a little bit like loose threads in the end. Like the overall mystery was wrapped up in a nice bow, mm-hmm. but there were some like side plots or side characters that had felt so significant in the moment. And I was so excited to see where they went. But in the end, you kind of just get a brief description of these characters in the final confrontation. And then they kind of went their separate ways and they weren't super relevant to the final big reveal, which was Mm -hmm. a little disappointing, but not so disappointing that I didn't enjoy the ending of the book. For sure. I actually had similar, uh, similar confusion towards the end of the book. Um, and I, I got some w- reader whiplash when it came to certain oh. the way that certain red herrings were handled. Um, thinking particularly of like you know one character where 
there were just a lot of quick pivots around like, oh, can we trust this character? We absolutely cannot trust this character. And then like a couple pages later, it's like, oh no, we can totally trust this character. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wait, where was that transition, the shift? It kind of felt like we were in, you know, watching a television series and in one episode, like the whole big mystery is around like, ah, we can't trust this character. And then by the next episode, suddenly like, oh, we're best friends. And it's like, did I miss something? Like what happened so I, I had some of those moments of confusion where things just felt like they were happening a little too quick. And my guess is this is a product of it being a mystery story and having a lot of like the need for a lot of red herrings and either some of them feeling underdeveloped because of lack of space or some scenes being edited out in order oh, to sure. uh, to make up the, the word count. Because when it comes to publishing, genres tend to have a pretty pretty specific word count in order for a book to feel marketable um, and to be worth printing because author, um, readers have expectations and publishers, you know, fall within those word counts generally. So they're not taking too many big risks and spending too much money on a book that might not sell. And even though Mary Robinette Cole has clearly written two wonderful series already, I get the sense that this is an author who who tries to fall within the bounds of expectations as often as possible. So I could see the editing was actually very, very good in this book. And I can see that uh, some sacrifices had to be made. And I love it's just it gets back to what we discussed in our very first episode, the fact that you're an editor. And just being able to hear you discuss this in such a knowledgeable way, like I didn't know any of that. And now I have a little bit better of a perspective about this book, which I think is great for me and for our listeners. Yay. Uh, yeah, I like we've reached this conclusion a lot. And I think it's always like it's always good in an argument to have both positives and negatives. But I think we still come away from it overall at least for me overall being in a place where i would recommend you read yeah. this book like i'll probably see if my partner wants to read it because he's already read the house in the cerulean sea so he'd be able to listen to our first episode i might try to push this book on him too and see if he'll read it because i it's a really i feel like it's it's about 350 pages but it felt like a pretty quick read i think it only took me a couple weeks like a few porch reading sessions and I nice. gobbled it right up. Yeah. That kitchen session where you read 50 pages instead of 10 as intended probably helped. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. You know, I think, I think the writing is super accessible. I think that the science is pretty beginner friendly. We have some audience surrogate characters who don't know as much as the main character, which gives uh, an audience surrogate is basically someone who knows as much or as little as the as the reader does so that when things get explained to it, it's not pandering to the reader. It's more of like a tool for understanding. So you have the main character being able to, to describe in, in maybe deeper detail than she would to appear to help readers understand what's going on. And so I think uh, this book, I would recommend this book too, even if you're new to science fiction, if you're old Pat, old hat whatever that phrase is with sure. science fiction. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's wonderful. And I, the two, the two Mary Robinette Cole books that I've read have definitely made me want to read more of her works. Nice. 
And I am now ready to get into spoiler territory. Spoiler territory. (laughs) So we'll be right back and we'll be diving into extremely spoilerific stuff. So if you haven't read the book yet, stop here. Come back and listen once you have. We're here entering the spoiler territory. It's our place to go crazy. So we're going to be getting into uh, specific and explicit details about uh, plots and characters and twists and the world building, uh, just everything and anything that catches our attention. And we want to discuss about this book. And because of that, there might be things that we don't discuss that you feel like we should or um things that kind of just get glossed over a little bit because we're more excited about other stuff so if that ever happens feel free to email us or message us and just let us know because i wouldn't see us being opposed to maybe addressing those tiny things at the beginning of a future episode yeah exactly uh, so why don't we start off with just doing a, a brief rundown of the the main characters so that anybody who has read this book but it's been a while um has an idea, uh, like a refresher of who we're talking about. Yeah, and I think this might be the one of the shorter stints through the main characters because there are a few like very main prominent characters and there's many, many secondary and even tertiary characters who are necessary for the mystery, but we don't interact with them too much. So the mainest of the characters (laughs) is our very own Tesla Crane, who is... A famous inventor who I already mentioned battles with chronic pain, but also PTSD from the event that resulted in her injury that Mm -hmm. causes her pain. Um, And it actually was related to the creation of one of her business's um, products. Because she kind of inherited, I believe, her family's business of creating robots, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But she's very famous. And I think that's a very important aspect of the book because her and her partner are on this um, honeymoon on this spacecraft. And they've actually taken on, um, what would you call those? assumed identities yeah like false identities so they are wearing like she specifically is wearing a wig to appear as a different um person so she has a pseudonym that she's using um and there's even science fiction aspects of this where like they have these things that divert the cameras or make it so when they log into different things in the ship her real name isn't being used Um, But there's also a science fiction aspect to how she deals with her chronic pain, which I was really intrigued by. Like she has this um, device implanted within her body that suppresses her pain and she can like use her mind and her eyes to dial it up or dial it back based on um, the situation that she finds herself in. 
Yep. So that was a really neat thing to read about, kind of this author's take on what does the future of dealing with chronic pain look like? And it really is, the future is finding ways that allows the person who is faced with this to deal with it on their own terms, which I thought was kind of gives the person more power over their body, which is great. It Uh, is. And I really enjoyed how it was utilized throughout the story. Like we see her dialing it back so she can feel her partner's touch on her body or dialing Mm -hmm. it up so she can get through a very difficult, physically difficult um, task and not have to... Uh, face the pain that would come from that. But she's also very in tune with this thing because she's had it for a few years now. Like she knows that if she turns it up too much and she can't feel her body, then she won't know if she gets injured or if she's hurt herself more so than she already is. So it's very well documented how this essentially to us present day folks, this super unrealistic medical advancement but it's it's so well discussed and so well implemented that it feels like it could eventually be something that is real well you know it's funny you say that and i know we were talking about the cast of characters but i do want to go into this more um as according to the author the dbps or the deep brain pain suppressor that tesla uses is barely science fiction because there currently is something called dbs which is deep brain stimulator and that is real and actually the author's mother used it i believe um her mother had has parkinson's and was uh you know very shaky unable to talk without slurring and uh when they gave her this dbs which uh, i think is actually like a device a physical device that's pressed against her skin or something um and she has like you know probably dials to turn it up or down um but with it the shaking actually stopped she was able to talk without slurring she was like herself again for the first time in a long time and so that's happening right now and so this to know It is. And so like this DBPS, what sounds like it's different about it is that it's deep, deeply in the, I guess, implanted inside the brain or something. And uh, as you were talking about how she was able to control it with her eyes, I realized that it sounds really similar to the upcoming uh, virtual reality device from Apple called the Apple Vision Pro. And that I, I was just reading and watching reviews about it. And it's like, a headset where it recognizes where your eye is looking and you use your eye as a cursor. And so if you're looking at, you know, uh, an up switch or a down switch and trigger it, I think by blinking then, or like maybe with a hand gesture like that recognizes it enough to be able to, to do it. But you don't have like, aside from the headset, you don't have like a physical dial. You don't have a physical um, switch or anything like it's, it's controlled by your eyes. And so I think this is probably the start of when we're going to be able to start seeing more and more medical advancements when you're using something like virtual reality, which is one of the strong technical advancements of this book is that they have, you know, heads up displays that they can see in their eyes and they're able to talk through something like subdermal communications where, if they whisper, it's like DMing 
somebody no one else can really hear you it's very private communication and i just really love that like this is the science fiction that's featured in this book and it doesn't feel as out of the realm of possibility as maybe it would have even 10 years ago Mm -hmm. very rooted in like our current technology just advanced a few decades like you a place you could imagine it being in a few decades once it's further along exactly do you want to talk about Shal? I do. So Shal or Shalmaneser Stewart is uh, Tesla's husband and a retired detective. And he's actually uh, the one who's, as you were saying earlier, just very attuned to Tesla and her needs and her emotions and is is always really concerned with how she's handling the pain. And she, he, he's like, you know, I want... I want to make sure that you're not overdoing it. You've got to feel your body so you know that you're not hurting yourself more because he loves her and he doesn't want to see her hurt. Um, so he's very sweet. He he was used to be a detective on like a cold case style reality television show where he would try and solve cold cases. And um, actually, I believe, retired from television when he became too famous to be able to continue on working. And I remember there's a detail later on where um, Tesla's always kind of prodding him because, I mean, I think it's really important that we talk about this right now. Shal is ultimately really early on the one who is uh, accused of committing the first murder on the spacecraft because him and Tesla are kind of the first ones on the scene for Mm -hmm. reasons that we'll get into later. Um, but then he chases after the perpetrator and has blood on his hands and the whole ship, the, like the security officers on the ship believe he's the one who's done it. So he's really a main part of this plot because he is the main suspect in this murder case, which is, a, yes. it's super important context as we continue to talk about him and his role in the story. Yes. Um, but I also, you mentioned how he's a retired detective and I remember later on Tesla's kind of poking and prodding him to be like, you're a detective. We can solve this and get you and like continue our honeymoon. And he talks about how um, he retired because he felt like he wasn't that. I, I hope, I hope you can kind of fill in the gaps in my knowledge here, but he mm-hmm. talked about how he retired because he didn't super feel like he was good at as good as it as people thought he was. Is that, is that, am I remembering that correctly? The way that I'm remembering it is that he felt like he couldn't adequately do his job anymore because he was too well known. And part of being a detective is that you need to kind of be able to blend into crowds and not be a notable face. But once he started dating Tesla crane, Mm -hmm. he was too famous to be able to do his job. And so he retired from being a detective, but didn't tell her this. And so whenever she was prodding him, like, oh, be a detective again. You're so good at it. Why don't you do this? He quit because he loves her. And being a detective again would mean not being with Tesla. And so I love that, like, this really core, like, frisson, the secret in between them is because of that sacrifice that he made where he chose Tesla over his career. Mm -hmm. And just another Because Shal was, as you mentioned, on this old cold case um, Mm kind of television show that I think is like 
really relatable to people who are into that sort of thing because there are those those types of shows today too. Yeah, but true crime. I, I think it's pretty interesting that Tesla was also on like I wish I remember the exact name of it, but she was essentially on Futuristic Dancing with the Stars. Yes, she was. And that a lot of people like on this ship, once her identity was revealed and she started using her identity to her advantage, knew mm-hmm. her because of either they were into the science that she created or they had seen her on this television show. So both of yeah. our main characters are fairly well-known people in the universe. That is the entire setting of this story i mean like the confined setting is the spaceship but the bigger setting is like the whole un like not the whole universe but our the system yeah yeah the solar system because we're in the future where you can travel amongst the planets so yeah there it just our main characters are essentially famous in this they're story. famous and i think that helps them be in the extremes of like they're very well known a lot of people aren't going to experience what fame is, but you get to kind of live it vicariously through them. But then they also have very deep-seated issues like Tesla's PTSD, uh, the chronic pain. She has a lot of flashbacks to that accident that uh, basically caused her in- injury and also wrecked her reputation. Um, and then for Shao, uh, those who know him as a retired but very good detective try to do whatever they can to keep him off of the scene so that they can continue, um, I guess, creating havoc and mischief on the ship without being interrupted or caught. Okay. So before we get into anything else, I want to talk about what is the name of Tesla's lawyer before we... Fantine. It's Fantine. That What's is your favorite, the, right? That was the character I was talking about earlier. Yes. I yes. relate to her because she knits and she wields her knitting needles like a weapon. And we only really interface with her via discussion or like kind of conversations between Tesla and her on her essentially iPad device, mm-hmm. her tablet device. Mm-hmm. And in really interesting ways, because as they travel away from Earth towards Mars, they're um delay goes from three minutes to five minutes to seven minutes to 11 minutes to 17 minutes and so forth yep so a lot of this story is rooted around the ship kind of taking away the rights of tesla and shall as they are falsely accused of this crime and kind of tesla and her lawyer battling for those rights to be returned to them and this mm-hmm. is just like she is so witty. She says the most inane things that are just yep. so fantastic. Ah, oh, I wish I, I I I can never remember the specifics like this. But she's like, I'm gonna knit your innards into a blah blah blah. Or like, <laughs> if the the incumbency on this ship, if I were there, things would. It's just like it's beautiful. Yeah, and. I laughed I, so hard. I, Me too. And I love how, like, she doesn't take flack from the characters who are very obviously, like, bad at their jobs. In, in some very cases, common, we find yeah. later doing so intentionally because maybe they have more stakes in this mystery than we thought originally. Right. But yeah, I, Fantine was great. I, 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 if, if I read this book again, it, one of the reasons would just be to be able to read those scenes again. That'd be well worth a read. I know. I I just, 
yeah, she was great. See, we talked about your favorite character. <laughs> and now we can talk about your favorite character. No, we can talk about my favorite character, which was Gimlet. Who no is, surprise there. No surprise there at all. And Gimlet is the white fluffy doggy. And more of a character than you would expect. More, Not even just a character, but like a catalyst and an emotional crutch for the protagonist. Mm-hmm. All three C's. Character, catalyst, crutch. Um, <laughs> Gimlet is a purebred Westie and the service dog to Tesla Crane. And Tesla and Shell rely a lot on Gimlet, first off, to warn them of anybody who's coming close or who might not be able to be trusted, but it also provides, uh, you know, the ability for Tesla to navigate through um, crowds and tense situations when her PTSD PTSD, what the heck am I trying to say? (laughs) (laughs) Post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. starts starts acting up and she starts having flashbacks. Gimlet is able to help Tesla get to safety, get someplace where she can be calm. She can sense uh, like a good service dog when an impending attack is going to come, like a, a flashback, panic attack, and just do whatever she can to help prevent uh tesla from losing herself in those moments and i just really love that like as a character gimlet is such a joy to read about she's so cute she's so fluffy um the what is it the uh security officer the main security officer or just one of them uh, maria piper loves gimlet and i just love seeing their bond grow Mm -hmm. as the you know she's always wanting to like pet gimlet she doesn't like tesla or shall very much (laughs) um but she loves gimlet and so that was just really really engaging and fun um when gimlet is abducted because gimlet knows too much (laughs) essentially yeah uh that's the catalyst for for like you know tesla was ready to step back from this mystery and it was like just let the ship handle it it's totally fine and then gimlet gets kidnapped dognapped and tesla's like oh no we've got to find gimlet now and and she's so scared because a purebred dog can sell for a lot on the black market Mm -hmm. i guess now um real live animals are a rarity when it comes to domestication especially if you're not on earth this is a, a cruise by the way that's going from earth to mars and we know that there are not only civilizations on mars but also on the moon yeah. So there's this is like the the realm of space travel that humanity has gotten to in this book. And I'm glad you mentioned the fact that Gimlet is eventually dognapped because I remember when I was reading it and it happened, I think I was on the porch with Sam and I was like, if anything happens to this dog, I'm going to riot. And I kept like updating. He kept asking me, is the dog back yet? Is the dog back yet? And I kept having to say, no, no. And eventually, yes. But I was just like, your Gimlet is such a well-developed character that mm-hmm. when she eventually does get dognapped, you feel the hole in your heart just as big as Tesla feels the hole in her heart. Like, Absolutely. It's, she's, the, the dog is just as much of a character as these humans. And I think I love that, honestly. Like That's too. why the dog is also on the front cover because of how big of a role yes. she plays in the story. Yeah, the three, uh, besides Fantine, the three characters we've mentioned, Tesla, Shell, and Gimlet, they're all on the cover. And actually on the cover, too, you can see Tesla's very um, nobly using her cane. Yes. So this cover's got it all, and then some. It's beautiful. I I do think Gimlet, 
the way Gimlet is handled with character development and as like the heart of this book, because Tesla, Tesla can be a little standoffish and a little hard to like at certain moments. She's always mm-hmm. sympathetic, but she can be hard to like at times. And Gimlet, Gimlet is the reason to like Tesla. I feel like sometimes it's the avenue through which you get to know who Tesla is as a, in her heart. But it reminds me so much of Avatar, The Last Airbender, especially <gasps> with Appa. Yes. Gimlet Hold kind of heart. softens uh tesla a little bit in she the does. same way i think like you were saying momo and appa can soften ang and even the whole group mm-hmm. it's just a, it's kind of like a grounding space like you reach the end of a hard-fought battle or a long day and you just you dissolve into the fluffiness that yes. is your pet and even more so for tesla who does have ptsd and who doesn't need Gimlet as one of her ways to cope with that. So, yeah. I I also, one more, one more thing about Gimlet is about how Gimlet is so cute and lovable. The one person who doesn't love Gimlet ends up being the person you got to watch out for. And I just love that the answer to the whole mystery is solved basically by Gimlet and who in that is way. That person, that person, uh, we think it's Halden. Halden, uh, how do you pronounce his name? Halden. That I will Kuz- say, Kuznetsova. That was one. Of, that was another part I had forgot. That's one of the parts I wish. I mean, some of the names in this they might be more. They're not used. I'm not used to saying names like this because I'm English slash American. Mm-hmm. So I don't say names of people from other countries. So I guess it's not to the book's fault, but there were names that I saw, but I never pronounced in my head, you know? Yes. I do really love the uh, the range, the cultural range of yes. names, because I'm just going to list them off right now. We've got uh, the captain of the ship, Val- Valdi Sardotir. Which I'm assuming is very Icelandic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Emmanuel Radowski, which I'm assuming is Polish. We've got Halden Kuznetsova, uh, which sounds more Russian potentially, but it's also very interesting that it's a Kuznetsova with like a female ending compared to, I okay. guess, I don't know. Um, that was what they were saying about the Val the author is saying about Valdisar Dotir, like usually it's like Valdisar's son, but this is Dotir. So like, this is the daughter of Valdisar. Um, There's George Saikawa, which I think is Japanese. There's Ori Slotemakers, which I think was Dutch. And uh, then you've got like Majibin Burke Gaffney, who sounds Indian, but Burke Gaffney, it just sounds like there's a huge mix of cultural familial ties in there. Yeah, and, and uh, it, yeah, it kind of makes you think space is kind of a melting pot in a sense, mm-hmm. which was really neat. Yeah, like all and these that... people from different walks of life are on this. I mean, that's a, that's a cruise ship nowadays too, right? It is. But this yeah. is just a cruise ship in space, so it's another grounding thing that allows the reader to, even if it is science fiction, like everybody's been on a cruise before, they can relate to the campiness of the cruise lining shows or like the in like the over the top decor in the different parts of the ship and whatnot. Yep. Uh, And also I think it's worthy to note that because 
this is interplanetary. We've got uh, the Terrans from Earth. We've got the Lunars from the Moon, and we've got Martians from Mars. So, like, instead of being about countries, it's more about like which which civilization, like which celestial body, have you come from? And they each have different gravities, like gravity expectations, and so the ship makes very good use of that very very good use of like okay earth needs this gravity mars martians need this gravity it is actually science i understand which i really liked about it because they talked about the centrifugal force so you have this Mm -hmm. ship that's spinning like a top so the um rings of the ship that are farther from the center are the ones that have the stronger gravity i believe and the rings that are closer to the center of the ship are the ones that have the lower forms of gravity. And it's also neat because they talk about the Coriolis force, which is something I'm actually going to be talking about in one of the classes I'm teaching this year on meteorology because a lot of the weather systems and the way wind moves around our planet is is controlled by the Coriolis force because air is moving over a spinning Earth, just like objects are moving through a spinning donut in the case of this ship. I just like some people might not relate to that because they don't know the science behind it, but I do. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool. They keep talking about the Coriolis force. And if I said that word in front of a class of high schoolers, it'd be like, did you just make that up? (laughs) (laughs) It's actually amazing because I, I learned about this Coriolis force or Coriolis effect in this book. And um, I'm currently playing on stream the game Outer Wilds. And that came into play. Yes. The Coriolis force came into play on my stream. I was able to utilize it in order to like help Amazing. me understand a little bit more about the game I was playing. And like, I don't think I would have known what the effect was or how to put a name to it if I hadn't read this book. So whoever said you can't learn science from a science fiction book uh, hasn't read the right ones yet. Amazing. So uh, uh, we were talking about Halden. Kuznetsova. And you were talking about how Gimlet does not like this character? This character doesn't like Gimlet. Oh, sorry. Yeah, vice versa. Yes. And so we we get to know how as kind of not like a rival, but another foremost celebrity individual in the tech engineering space. Um, Halden actually owns the ship that Mm -hmm. they're on, the Lindgren. And uh, so Tesla is aware of who this is by reputation, but hadn't actually met Halden yet. And here they are. They're on the same interplanetary cruise. Um, and Halden keeps getting connected to the victims of the murders. So I think the first the first victim is a former lover. Another victim is a former roommate of Halden and uh you know, more and more as these murders happen, you start seeing Halden uh, kind of spiral down into desperation and vulnerability. And the one, like, as Tesla gets, you know, gets to know Halden better, you know, she's more sympathetic, she's she's understanding the man better. And the one thing that she can't quite come to grips with is how little Halden seems to like Gimlet. Mm-hmm. Do you remember why that yes, is? Yes, it's the one of the big reveals that kind of supplants Tesla's theory in the end is um, Tesla kind of figures out that is he, is this person actually allergic to dogs? I believe there's like an image shown later in mm-hmm. which 
Halden, the actual real Halden, oh, spoiler, uh, had a dog or was like really fond of dogs. So it was, it was really it was a magazine cover, yeah, yeah posing it was, so with it was his dog. Really strange that this Halden, in air quotes, didn't like dogs. And it turned out that the main perpetrator of all these crimes on this ship was somebody who it was Halden, but it was not Halden. This character mm-hmm. was impersonating Halden because the title of the book, The Spare Man, one of the big <sighs> mysteries yeah. was the fact that there was a body found floating in essentially the ship's, uh, not even a body, the, uh, the, the mass of a body was found floating in like one of the decomposition trash yep. areas of the ship. And it was a body unaccounted for. And it because it was the real Halden who mm-hmm. this character, Max Astaire, I believe, had... Yep killed and then impersonated and the reason all these killings are taking place is because he essentially this impersonator needs to off all the people who know too much yes and who would be able to like say like this isn't the real halden and get him in trouble because as he's assuming this personality this identity when he reaches mars and nobody knows the wiser he'd be able to suddenly be a ceo of a very very vast corporation among the star among the planets i should say Mm -hmm. and uh gain a lot of money so he stows away and then steals us this identity and if it wasn't for tesla crane and her pesky detective husband uh he probably would have gotten away with it yeah and i just there's a lot of extra stuff around that that we were talking about earlier added some like there were a lot of characters i enjoyed reading about and i was interested in mm-hmm. like there was this there was this other coupling of i believe two women mm-hmm. um who were also one of them was an inventor of some sort that mm-hmm. tesla started to befriend and help and that started helping her and then there was also, I believe, somebody who was in league with our main villain was a magician who yes. had a show on the ship. Their name was Nile. And Nile Silver, the amazing Nile Silver. Nile was a big person in this crime because I believe Nile used one of their crates to smuggle Max onto the ship. Yes. And then I believe that's where Gimlet was being hidden in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, but this, there were so many different characters in this book. It almost was too much for my brain to keep track of at points. Like I felt very Game of Thronesy in that I recognized faces, but not names. Uh And this is vice versa. Like, oh, I remember reading that name before, but I don't remember this character in the context of the story because like, there's just a lot of them. Um, And one of those threads was this Ori Slootmaker's Ewan um, thread, who's like this father who has this daughter, I believe. Is it? Uh, Or it's just child? Ewan is is out out as trans. Yes. Okay. Um, And there's this whole mystery around like, is this person smuggling this child onto this? Like, there's this whole mystery that eventually was discussed, but was also not entirely relevant to the main plot of the story. It was kind of like this secondary plot in which Tesla had um, run this competition um, years before in which Ewan had competed 
and there's just a lot to it that I'm not even remembering now because like I was so focused on the main mystery that as I was mm-hmm. reading through that, it didn't feel pertinent to it in the end. Like I, I was really glued to it and then I discovered it wasn't as relevant as I thought it was going to be. So I kind of pushed it out in favor of trying to understand the main mystery more. Yeah, there was a lot going on. I actually feel like the the climactic reveal was really bonkers. Yes. <laughs> because things kept like being thrown at us uh, with the Coriolis effect, actually, literally in one situation, where a lot of things was happening all at once. And I think, I think part of it is that there were a lot of red herrings because mysteries, I think mysteries are pretty much built backwards. You know the ending and then you have to like build obstacles and red herrings along the way to like build up that tension and to like give false leads for the main characters to follow because otherwise you know it'd be very boring if you just knew where it was going right from the get-go but because of the false leads you know um that that lesbian couple was one of them where you know i don't know if we're supposed to trust these characters Mm -hmm. i think they're up to something fishy one of them is a very accomplished engineer as well maybe she's behind the attacks um maybe the contortionist can fit into tight places like i don't know uh and then you've got like this this clearly suspicious Ori Slootmaker's father figure and like something's up with him. He looks like the kind of person who could murder a person. But then it just turns out like, oh, no, he just abducted this child. And the tie into the story is that it's it's Shell's cold case that he never was able to solve. Oh, yeah. See, I hate that I didn't remember that. Yeah. Because it so kind of speaks. He quit. Yeah. yeah. You know, go ahead, go ahead. It it speaks to how secondary it felt in the end and how unimportant it ultimately ended up being, I guess. Like a lot of things felt unimportant, but yes, go yeah. on. It's like I wanted it to be important and I wanted that payoff and I wanted it to tie into the overall like forcing narrative, which were these murders on this ship, but some of the things didn't ultimately do that. And I thought I wish I wish all the threads tied together more tightly i agree and i think i think the reason it doesn't is because the author set herself up for a very difficult challenge which was to make a mystery out of something that people probably wouldn't be able to predict and that is that halden is being impersonated by somebody who's not halden and so you have these like wild goose chases because the fake Halden is making up stories that are then leading to red herrings that ultimately mean nothing. So there was like something about remember the main or something like that. And it was like going into something that wasn't ultimately even a clue. It just so happened to be like very coincidental, but it just, it's not very strong. Like the connections that have been made with the clues are very, very, very weak because a lot of them are just straight up made up. They have no bearing on the actual mystery. Um, And then like people just end up being murdered because of it anyways, which is just kind of glad you brought up. It's just very coincidental. I'm very glad you brought up Remember the Main because in the, it just sparked a memory in the end. It was addressed, the fact that they were, I believe it was Shal, Tesla, Halden, air quotes, and mm-hmm. one of the security officers, um, Maria, that were all in um, Tesla and Shal's suite, essentially, talking. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Maria goes into the bedroom and then leaves. And something or other, the lights go out, Halden, Mm. it turns out later, 
actually injured himself in that moment to make it yep. look like somebody had attacked him when the lights went out. Um, and then they discover, oh, remember the main is written on the mirror in yep. Tesla's bedroom. And then it's later thought, oh, the reason it wasn't there when I checked it, Mariah thought, was because um, Halden must have written it when he walked in there. It's just like, these are really smart characters. There were only four people in that room. I'm surprised uh-huh. that conclusion wasn't reached sooner. And that I was know. that was one of the moments towards the end where I maybe rolled my eyes a little. And I'm just like, oh. I mean, now that yeah. you say it, it seems so obvious. So I guess these characters in the moment, because it could have easily overlooked it, but like Tesla and Maria were per- portrayed as very smart, very, yes. like, very on top of things type of characters. To their credit, the author was playing around a lot with lights and power getting shut off. And also there are like hidden secret connected doors and tunnels in the ship that people didn't know about um, or that like only the staff had access to. So that also introduced a whole like swath of staff characters suddenly being suspect. Mm -hmm. And there was like a case of an identical twin. And it was just like, there was just a lot of like suddenly, suddenly soap opera. Yeah, it's it's very soap opera y. It it feels it feels like a a bad high school setting television show like Riverdale or something. Okay. Like it just has that kind of vibe. And I think I think it's because of the choice to make so much of it coincidental rather than intentional in terms of setting up this mystery. And it it actually like to Mary Robinette Cole's credit, like I think this is how it would have gone down in real life. Like, mm-hmm. I think this feels very accurate to real life. It's just not what we're used to in a book. So like in real life, if someone's like, uh, uh, has impersonated someone's identity so completely that even the people who know them are like not super suspicious about it, that, um, you know, they would, oh, just write something. Like they would, they would do stupid things, make stuff up. They would like write things down. They would hurt themselves. And then like the people around them would probably be none the wiser. Exactly. They don't know this person. And the science around it aids in that, like aids in yes. the realism and aids in the identity being true when it not actually is. So it's believable yeah. in the end. And I'm hoping to kind of wrap up this discussion on characters before we get into the queerness in the book. Yeah. So I think we did just spend about 10 to 15 minutes talking about what we saw as for lack of a better term holes in the mystery in this or just like things we felt were a little bit on the looser end Mm -hmm. despite all of that what about this book makes it one you would recommend reading i for me it's more about the world building than the plot yes that's exactly what i would have said characters 100 because it's like I just love this queer world, this queer friendly world where um, the one character you're like actively rooting against, this antagonist, genders people, like calls them by like, you know, oh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Crane. And it's just like, are you kidding me right now? Like, did you seriously just disrespect me by not using the mix honorific? Like, you don't know me. I have not given you my mm-hmm. genders to use. That is very, very rude. You just made assumptions um, and just like like outward shows of disrespect, which is the way that we talk right now. And it's just very striking to me that like this is how uh, cultural and social conventions can shift over time and what feels appropriate and and kind and respectful even now in the future ages poorly. 
And so I think this is going to be one of those books where um, I'm hoping that this book ages very well because of it, but it also makes me wonder about how the lens that we view some maybe classics from the past suddenly feel antiquated and um, potentially homophobic or racist or, you know, like at the time, those things might have been appropriate, but they're not any longer. And so this book, I think there could be a discussion around how stories can age and also how social conventions change over time and how it shifts our perspective. But I, I just really, really love this this world and i think it's aspirational and optimistic um and and i would just love to see it being normalized to share our pronouns when we are introducing ourselves to other people yeah like as a default and people not like roll their eyes at you if you do that just something that is Mm -hmm. accepted and like that would have been exactly what i said too like i'd read this book again and i think i would understand the mystery more in doing so Mm-hmm. But what I really got out of it in my initial read was my love of the characters and my fascination with the setting and yes. my interest in seeing how the relationships in the book sort of evolved, especially between Tesla and Shal. I was just like so intrigued by this relationship between these two people that I wanted to see it through to the end. Can I tell you something? Sure. About Shal. Um, when I was reading it, I had a very difficult time not picturing Shal as trans. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I. It's it's never right really addressed um, specifically, but I do remember there was a point. I think that was the way time Joyfriend was used, right? Tesla referred mm-hmm. to Shal as her joyfriend. Yep, and spouse. Yep. Um, and his, I, he goes by he him. But so do a lot of trans folk. And uh, his name is Shal, which feels like a name that I don't know what naming conventions they have in the future, but it feels like a name that somebody could choose for themselves mm-hmm. um, because it's it's a pretty gender ambiguous name. Um, even Shalmaneser, like it has with the ER at the end, it has more of a masculine flair to it. But like I loved Shal as a name. It feels like the name Storm you know, where it feels beautifully gender neutral, like it could be for anybody. Um, And his, his assumed name with the identity that they've, you know, falsely taken on to be safely anonymous (laughs) is my shall husband. So that uh, as he jokes, Tesla would be able to introduce him to other people as my husband, which I love. I chortled. That was, it was good in the book. I liked that. It was good. It kind of, but like, it keyed yeah, you into Shell's like the humorous side of Shell and like the type of uh-huh. the type of humor that um he found joy in. He's very he's very endearing. And I think like the there's like one or two descriptions of like him with his shirt off where mm-hmm. I was like, okay, maybe he is like cis mask. But at the same time, like, you know, there weren't any scars mentioned, like if he had had appendages removed um, to make him feel more comfortable in his own body. But like, I I just like right away, I was just like, Shal's trans. And I, I love that, like, aside from maybe like one moment in the book, there really wasn't anything in this book to prevent me from fully believing that. And I, I love how open it is that like in this world of gender neutrality, people are just people. And 
you, you know, you can read into them as you like. If they're not actively contesting it, I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I what do you think about this? I think um if it were true, I wish the author had been more pronounced about it and more direct about it. But I also don't mm-hmm. think there's any harm in characterizing the characters in your own light too. Like it'd be neat if somebody reading this drew like came to that same conclusion and thus connected to that character more and was able to relate to them more. Like I I think that's pretty cool that somebody could do that while reading this book. Cause it honestly was something that never crossed my mind until you brought it up. But when you brought it up, I started, started to think about some details more and start to think, Hey, maybe that could be true. I also, like, I just kind of feel like, to me, having this very queer world, but then having a really heteronormative main couple felt a little bit antithetical to the world that Cole was setting up here. And so I was like, it would make a lot more sense if, like, you know, this character is just very quietly trans, just, like, is trans. It doesn't mean to be a big deal about it. Tesla accepts Shao for everything that he is. Um, Shal obviously accepts and loves himself. Gimlet loves them too. And that's all that really matters at the end is that Gimlet loves them. Something I always do when I finish watching a show or a movie or reading a book is like go online and read what other people have to think about it. And one Uh of the articles I read was talking about how like they'd under they they felt like Shal could have been non-binary or trans, but in the end realized that no, they were just a man, but like a trans, a trans man is a man. So like exactly that conclusion would still be met if they were trans. So exactly. Yeah. Who knows? I, I think it's an interesting point of discussion though. Yeah. I I just, I read that and I thought, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, actually that is, that would be true. Uh, but yeah, I, the the queerness in this book, I, I really, like, I, I'm going to tell you, I was reading through this and I was just like, why did Amy recommend this for our podcast? But I was reading it more and more and realizing exactly why you did. And it's because of, it just, it feels very intentionally accepting, I guess, and very intentionally yeah. um, demonstrating this future in which respect just naturally elevates queerness and naturally mm-hmm. uh, accepts it and doesn't think twice about it. Like this future where people proceed with their pronouns and their first time they introduce themselves to somebody where people default to referring to people as this is Mix Stewart and Mix Crane uh, mm-hmm. And not gendered terms like Mr. and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, it's just like, even if it isn't overtly queer in like the main characters or even some of the side characters, it is in, I think, the world that queer people would eventually like to live in, where yes. their queerness is no longer a oddity or something to be argued about but it's just our world has evolved into this place where it is another it's just something else it's just it's just there and now we all understand it and we live with it 
and we live within it. Yeah. Is so, and, I guess go ahead. saying that is, does that kind of capture why you felt it was something we should read and discuss? Yeah, absolutely. Like I have never read, and maybe this is just uh, a bit of a hole in my reading repertoire, but I have never read a book that has been just so both quietly and also very out loud in, in a fiction book queer and just so inclusive and not assumptive. And I think for all of you uh, writers out there who are wondering like, but how can you, how can you describe a person without describing them in, in a, a gender coded way? Read this book, take, take notes about how these characters are being described because you can read any of these descriptions about a person and then about like one of these characters and not make the assumption of like, Oh, well clearly they're male or well clearly they're female. Like it's, you have to wait until the author says, okay. And then here is this character. Hello. They've introduced themselves as she, they, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, okay. Yep. God. And please, if you can think of or you've read books in which the author does present a world that's very similar to this, let us know so we can read it. Because like Amy was just saying, I'd love to read more books that do this. Yeah, I, I've i just been flipping through to find any um, any of the descriptions. I remember specifically the description for Annie Smith was very well done. Um, but I'm finding one about Lee Osborne de Monchot, who is uh, the ship's lawyer, uh, colleague to Fantine, your favorite character. Uh, and, oh, it's about a doctor, actually. So this is this is about a doctor that this Lee Osborne de Monchot had found. The new doctor was Terran short and Anglo-Saxon white with absurd curls and a flamboyantly bright turquoise confection around his neck that was somewhere between a tie and a cravat. And like, if if the word his, if that pronoun wasn't in here, this this would have been a very similar description if, you know, her or they around their neck, you know, and it would have been the same. Yeah, and the author very intentionally, like that the fact that Mary used the pronoun there, like... Mm-hmm we this person knew this it was being respectful of this and introduced it as such mm-hmm. to key the reader into it whereas the yeah. characters in the story at least the respectful ones would have taken the time to be respectful and learn and then mm-hmm. um start to use gendered pronouns if that person had identified as accepting such yeah, here's another one that I just found by uh, going through. Uh, blue trousers, a snugly fitting top. Wait, that was a crew member. The waif turned. Holding a tray with straw pale pilsner on it. Tesla scanned the room. That was the only server in here besides Josie. The person with blue locks wasn't anywhere. So we have two characters being described, one character being named, and we don't know anybody's gender here, but blue trousers, snugly fitting top, a waif and then somebody with blue locks like 
I remember my brain was trying to like give like attribute genders to these descriptions before we actually met the characters. I was usually wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to like my own biases as I'm reading about characters and like not just accepting that like, you know, just wait until you're told. I think the main one. Oops, sorry. Go ahead. I think the main one was George Sakawa. I think so too. George is a, as far as most people would assume a fairly masculine name. But, mm-hmm. sorry, I was going to let you finish. <laughs> oh, but yeah, but she goes by she, her. Yeah. Sorry, we don't finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, that was an interesting conclusion to reach early on. And it kind of keyed you into what to expect throughout the rest of the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sad we didn't get to know that character more. That was one of... Our murderer's first victims. No, not one George of them. George sounded it, really cool. I guess it was, it was. the second one, technically, because I guess the original Halden. Halden was decomposing Poor in Hal. the yeah. <sighs> Darn you, Max! Killing all the characters I before know. we could get to know them better. Ugh, His the death villain. count got very high towards the end. Like I'm characters surprised. dying one after like that big climatic scene in the odd like where they do the magic shows like mm-hmm. suddenly there's this octobot on the wall that shoots acupuncture needles at a character and just like whoa an action scene is suddenly it was really intense I and i i kind of and i kind of like the coriolis effect here <laughs> yes it would have hit this character but it actually hit this character because of the coriolis effect beautiful yeah it it a lot of the stuff did end up working very well and really was fun to read which Mm -hmm. is just another reason i think this book is worth reading like even if some of the threads don't tie into that neat little bow at the end like i felt satisfied at the end of this book me too so we are wanting more we are getting toward that hour and a half mark but yes. I had one more topic I wanted to discuss. So I figured we could kind of each pick. We're never going to be able to talk about everything we want to and make our episodes mm-hmm. short and like <laughs> consumable lengths. So there are going to be things we miss and that's okay. Let us know. Maybe we'll continue our discussions with little blurbs on Instagram or maybe we there discuss we things a little bit later. But the way we could do that is if you let us know what you want us to talk more about but the last thing i kind of it's one of the things i wrote in my notes and it's one of the things i really want to talk about because i really appreciated it in this book and i've mentioned it already but it's the fact that i appreciate our author appreciate the author so much for centering the story around a feminine heroine who is suffering from both ptsd and chronic pain Mm -hmm. i'm personally only familiar with one of those and my pain is much different than tesla Tesla's, but I still mm-hmm. related to her in this regard. I suff- I have suffered from and still do um, GERD and in some mm. cases very severe heartburn. And it this type of pain impacts your life in ways people who don't experience it would never understand. Like in ways that like when I'm suffering from this pain, I can get depressive or I can think back to times when I wasn't going through this pain and like sadly look at those times and like imagine them and Mm. just feel sadness for the fact that here I am in this pain. So I appreciated being able to read about a character 
that was dealing with chronic pain. And like I said, very different than my own pain, but still relatable for me, which I think could be relatable to other people who are experiencing different forms of chronic pain. And I really think these types of stories need to be told more and normalized more so people can be more empathetic because a lot of, a lot of pain is invisible and silent and you don't know what Mm -hmm. people are going through. So reading stories about people who are going through pain that you might not know about otherwise is great. Um, And really early on in this book, even before Tesla and Shal were thrown through the ringer in this, all the things they went through in this book, um, her silent battle was ours to be able to sympathize with. Um, mm-hmm. but as it became more known to the other characters in this world, um, we see the reality of how people can interact with somebody who does suffer from chronic pain like this. Like we see how people can, like, does she really need, um, the, sorry, does she really need the service dog? Is she just mm-hmm. faking it to get? Um, sympathy and attention like all these there are these characters in this book who Mary is portraying as that sort of skeptic and that uh, sort of um, unsympathetic character and like I'm the type of person who enjoys sorry enjoy is not the correct word I am the sort (laughs) of person who appreciates authors bringing to light these types of people so that people can see, yes, people think like that. Enjoy was definitely not the right word. Whoops. (laughs) Um, There's something satisfying though about having these discussions in the book. And I appreciate that. I know what you mean. There are these characters who are these kind of, not villains, but definitely a little bit more close-minded people who Mm -hmm. are stuck in their ways and who see people who claim air quotes to be suffering from chronic pain to be just faking it for reasons that are honestly quite, yeah, I, it just, I'm getting kind of word jumble here as I reach the end of that because of all the thoughts I have coursing through my head about it, but I'm just appreciated, appreciating that I got to read about Tesla and her struggles and her triumphs. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, her weaknesses of PTSD and this chronic pain, like become some of her strengths because there's a moment in the end, um, I remember the bathroom scene where we learn finally that Halden is actually this actor, Max Astaire, and he's pretending to be Shal and going to try to like make a, a confession video about how Tesla's husband ends up murdering her, you know, and we know it's not shall, but it's so frustrating that this is what the world's going to be perceiving, especially because they are such like a paragon of relationships. Mm -hmm. And I remember there's a time when uh, he's on top of Tesla and I think her, uh, her deep brain pain suppressor either gets turned off or uh, something happens and she's in an incredible amount of pain. But she's able to look back and say, wait, I remember how to live with yes. this pain. 
And I know that I don't need the pain suppressor to get myself out of this situation. And she does it. She's able to knock him off of her, which he's not expecting. And that's how she survives. She survives this murder attempt because of her pain, because she's experienced worse than what he gives to her right now. And she knows how to deal with it and how to cope and how to persevere. And I think that was probably the most exemplary moment in the whole book for me. And I was like, this is how you turn a character's weakness into strength. Yes. And and it's like she learned all these coping strategies to like strengthen her core and like yes. revert her thoughts away from the pain and just like seeing how strong somebody who suffers from chronic pain can become in the way that they develop strategies and surefire yes. ways to address it. I'm glad you brought that up. That's amazing. Yeah, it was it was my favorite part of the whole book, um, even accounting for Gimlet. And I just I, I, I think this is a common thread in the books that we have read so far for this podcast that having these perspectives of characters that, you know, we don't have the opportunity to read as very often, but who resonate with us just the same mm-hmm. helps to cultivate empathy. And I, I would love to see more like this. So if you have any suggestions, uh, you know, you listeners for for books who have characters who deal with uh, PTSD or chronic pain or maybe some other invisible struggles that like anxiety just not really privy to, or depression, I would love or... oh, as someone who's dealing with with some anxiety, like severe anxiety right now, I, I would love to have a character who I can I can see persevere and grapple with this. I would, I would love that. That would, that would resonate. Is there one last thing you'd like to discuss before we wrap up? Oh, I wish I could pet Gimlet. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's our podcast. Right? I, I, I love Gimlet. More books with fluffy, cute dogs, please. Um, but no, I think, I think we covered a lot of the things that I wanted to talk about today. We could have countless more discussions about this book. It's, yep. it's very rich. Awesome. Yeah, I Gimlet, I was I was very I I, I announced very excitedly to Sam, Gimlet's back <laughs> as soon as they were reunited. I was like yeah. very stressed every minute, every page I turned that Gimlet had not been reunited with Tesla. And what a brilliant what a brilliant character that when they're off the page we feel their absence so astutely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And not even a human character. I know. Uh, so pure that's why so yeah everybody that was our discussion on the spare man by mary robinette cowell and i i'm glad i read it i'm glad you suggested it it was not at all what i was expecting and it opened my mind to even new places queer literature can go and how it they can use not use how they can portray queerness in a um different way i'd never read about before i'm so glad you enjoyed it and that you found characters that you uh, resonate and look up to i definitely do now it's great so yeah uh our next episode do you want to talk about that yeah this is this i'm actually reading this book right now and i'm really enjoying it uh our next episode is going to be released at the end of november And for the spooky season, the Mm -hmm. fall, 
autumnal season, we're going to be reading a book called Echo, written by Thomas Old Huvelt. Huvelt? Um, and just a little kind of sneak peek about that book. It's supernatural. Yes. In a really neat way. That's all I'm going to say. That's as much as I know about it so far. But I like I already have like three points I want to discuss about it when we record our episode. So I'm excited. It's a really interesting read so far. I will say for those of you who are familiar with and have enjoyed the Magnus archives, this book is going to be right up your alley. See, and you mentioned that and I kind of need to start listening. I I love finding spooky like autumnal podcasts to listen to on my drive to work this season. So that is love it. high on my list. Have you listened to um, the Black Tapes podcast? No. Because it's also very much that. I So... You need to listen to the Black Tapes, and I need to listen to the Magnus Archives. Perfect. Our spooky autumnal listens. Yes. Amazing. So, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I Every time we record an episode, I feel less anxiety about it. I feel more um, comfortable in this medium. So I'm hoping that uh, just continues as we record more episodes. And you're going to notice our episodes are hopefully going to start taking a more and more, like, continuous sort of structure so as you listen to them they'll all feel a little bit similar so you can know what to expect as you listen through them i notice as we record our earlier episodes they are a little bit more everywhere as we're kind of getting our footing and whatnot but i think we're going to get into a nice rhythm rhythm where uh they start to feel they start to feel pretty um natural yeah and and this is where you can help us out too if you uh if you find that you're liking um any trends or patterns in our episode that you want to see more of like if you want to see more upfront discussions about uh the queer aspects of the book if you want us to uh talk a little bit less about something to focus a little bit more on something else um please do let us know uh again our email address is the big, the big gay book club at gmail.com. We almost said that at the same time. Yeah. And our Instagram <laughs> TBG book club. Yeah. Um, we also have other uh, social media that you can follow us at. Uh, at least for me, you can find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Jaspelior. My big game uh, for the fall season is going to be Starfield, and uh, I'm going to be playing it uh, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I know that Sam, uh, my gosh, I said Sam because I was trying not to say Toto. I know that Chris is going to be around for some of those Oh, for sure, because I'm also super excited to play that game, and Amy actually has a really fun, neat way she's going to be interacting with the game in, so... I'm so excited. I'm hoping we can have some con- uh, conversations and discussions about how queer the queer potentials for Starfield is, but we're going to have to play it first to see what that true potential is. Yeah, definitely a beginning of the podcast discussion type of deal. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Yeah. Thank you, and everybody. A big thank you to Kevin McLeod for the use of our theme song, Work. That's W-E-R-Q, which you have heard throughout this episode. You can find more of his music on Incompetech. Uh, Until next time, everybody, I've been Chris. I've been Amy. 
Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.